It's time for the Extra Innings Podcast, presented by the Seattle Times. Your host is Seattle Mariners beat writer Ryan Divish. This semi-weekly slash monthly slash whenever he gets around to it podcast talks about the Mariners, Major League Baseball, food, and whatever else Ryan and his guests decide to talk about. And now, here's your host, Ryan Divish. All right, who sounds professional with those lead-ins? Yeah, looking, we're, we're sounding like a real podcast here. Pretty soon we'll have t-shirts and headphones in a studio and everything um big thanks to kyle riley for sending me those drops we'll have one at the end as well uh just kind of a static voice to to do a lot of the intro and and then closing stuff that i always do and seem to mess up stutter stammer and everything uh that goes wrong with this um semi-professional podcast uh we are back i am back from japan jet lag is real uh can't possibly tell you how amazing that trip was um the opportunity to go over there and be a part of that in terms of just baseball coverage and covering it um was amazing i can't thank the seattle times enough it was not a cheap trip obviously to go overseas but i i feel like it's important that you're at these things and you know the times did as well and so i was there to write stories and obviously there for the retirement of ichiro which was something that you know, I'll never forget professionally to be there on the field as he's being um, applauded or, you know, being serenaded by cheers from fans and watching him run around and, and thank the fans. It was it was surreal on almost every level um, and, you know, got to write a lot of cool stuff off of that and and really just seeing the culture and the way Japanese fans embrace the game and how much fun they have at games it was it was just awesome um i i can't um describe uh like the feeling in the stadium the energy the passion and and really just how much i want to go back and and see it again um whether it's you know covering the major league teams or even just going as a fan and, and experience some experience some experiencing some nippon professional baseball uh, I, I think it would be amazing. Obviously, uh, I mentioned before, but my mom is is full Japanese. She wasn't born there, obviously, but she is full Japanese. I took my mom. I took my aunt uh, as well, and they stayed with me. And then the times allowed me to stay uh, for three extra days, and we went to Osaka, and it was just, you know, we did a lot of sightseeing. I mean, all I did was eat for basically two weeks. Um, and it was just a really cool experience. I called it a trip of a lifetime and, and it really is. Uh, I, I can't, you know, I'm just really thankful for that happening. Um, cause it's not like something you expected. You know, when I was a sports writer, wanted to be a sports writer in college, I never thought I going to be doing all this. You know, you have goals or dreams of what you hope to become. And obviously over time, those are mod- modified, you know, I always thought I want to be the next Gary Smith of Sports Illustrated. That's really not a path that I can go down anymore or that I'm talented enough to do. But, you know, I feel like this job fits and to have this opportunity to do this stuff is some, something that certainly exceeded my expectations. Um, I highly re- recommend anybody the opportunity to visit Japan. It's, it's an amazing country. Um, for me, I got to understand a lot of the things that my grandma and great grandma and my grandfather all 
that they did and why they did it some of the little customs they had some of just the little quirks to their the way they ate or prepared food or acted i i got to understand that being around uh being in japan and seeing how that kind of operated um and and just really like i said the the experience of of going there and seeing baseball and the way they cheer and and everything like that plus hey i, I checked beers were only five dollars at the game so you know if you like that i mean that might be reason enough to go over there um trying to think of other takeaways from that i thought mob did a pretty good job of organizing it um and and really putting it all together um you know it was very professional and and there were a lot of things to like about it i, I i'm almost certain that the mariners will go back again um, I'm not sure when, but they're a relatively popular team over there as well. So obviously having Ichiro on the team and then Yusei Kikuchi on the team makes a big difference. But um, yeah, the, the adoration of those fans for Ichiro, I, I'm guessing it's like rock star status is probably the best way to describe it. You know, he can't go anywhere um, because he's just so popular. Like if he walked down the street in in Tokyo, there would be a crowd of hundreds gathering around him within an instant. He's that popular. And in that way, you know, I think it's difficult for him to be there. He has to operate on a different level than the average players. But, you know, I thought it was pretty cool for him to decide to retire um, there instead of waiting here. Obviously, there's an attachment from Mariners fans, but Ichiro changed the perception of the Japanese baseball player in the world. Um, if you recall, there was a lot of people that thought Japanese position players couldn't play in this league, that they would never have success, that they just couldn't, that only pitchers could have success, and he proved them differently. Now, we haven't seen a ton of great position players come over. Obviously, Hideki Matsui, on a lesser level, Nori Aoki. Uh, remember Kosuke Fukudome? Yeah, um, not so great, but... You know, it was important. He was the first, and he was—he really established the possibility. And and he was an icon. And I think my understanding of his importance wasn't just from the fan reaction, but watching Yusei Kikuchi tear up when he real—you know—seeing Ichiro say goodbye and understanding that that this was his last game uh, for Kikuchi. This was. Ichiro is a player he just worshipped and adored as a kid. So think about that. Like Kikuchi makes his first big league start in Japan and his idol and hero growing up is starting in right field in what would be his last game. I think it was an emotional overload for Kikuchi and we saw that with the tears. I thought they were very genuine, very sweet. Um, you know, and, and that was it was great to see. And it was great to hear from some of the players uh, and, and their perception of Ichiro and, and what he meant to them. I will tell you that it hasn't always been that way from some of his teammates in the past, but I think the Ichiro's a different player now than he was back then and a different person that happens as you get older. Uh, some people just get a little bit easier to reach out to than maybe before. I, Ichiro tended to be a little more aloof in the past than others, and I think the perception and, and the, um, the idea of being more open to different thinking in this game has permeated over the years. Whereas in comparison, when I first started covering this beat, it was kind of like back in 2006, 2007, it's just one way. And that's the only way. And if you don't follow that one way, then you're doing it wrong. And I think that was a part of 
what was the problem or some of the criticisms of Ichiro is that he didn't follow the norm and that upset people. And I think that's just really small minded on a lot of levels. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the coverage of that. It was pretty interesting. Uh, we're talking to Larry Stone, obviously, today, and we get into a little bit of the details of that, uh, just kind of the TikTok and when we found out and all that stuff. So, And Larry wrote, a, I thought, a pretty good column on each row, and so we get into that uh, early in our interview. Uh, and then, obviously, this intro is a little longer. Uh, I'm doing that because our special section story my special section story on the Mariners step back came out today and I thought I'd discuss it a little bit, uh, just on my own. Um, you know, the special section came out on Sunday, but, uh, we've kind of spaced out the numbers, you know, there's a bunch of stories in there. So we've spaced out the stories being released online, uh, each day, giving a little bit to fans. And then today my main story, uh, was posted online. Um, I want to say it was like 4,000 words and, to be honest, I could have written 10,000 words. That's how much I had to write about this situation. Um, and it just, you know, there's limits. And and there's a limit to what people are willing to read anyways. You know, a lot of people aren't going to read 4,000 words or a feature story. Um, I made the mistake of looking at the comments on the story, which always gets me in trouble. And uh, I've looked at some tweets and interacted with some fans. So I, I'm, I'm trying to clarify a few things on this. Um, in terms of the nuts and bolts, I, I wanted to go in and kind of write about what was going on with this step back and how they decided to do it and what was the thinking that came to it. You know, like how did they decide, when did they decide that this was the right path to go on? Because they won 89 games last year. And while we know that a lot of that was luck and a lot of that – probably wasn't going to happen this year that there would be regression from some players i mean it's still a significant accomplishment to the point where it would have made the wild card game in almost every season over the last six or seven years but it didn't last year because the oakland A's were so good so you know i wanted to find out what the thinking was like when they decided that that what they had coming back wasn't going to be enough and so uh jerry depoto um i want to do an interview with jerry depoto this spring uh, he wanted to go get dinner, so we went and had food at this Italian um, market over in Scottsdale. Drove over there, did the interview. You know, I bought my I bought my dinner. He bought his own, so there's no, you know, that kind of stuff, collusion or whatever. Not I don't I don't want to use that word. Oh my God, that's such a loaded word in this current climate. But anyways, so we just it's just like two guys doing an interview while eating sandwiches. Uh, which I love sandwiches. So we talked, I think DePoto was on the record for about 66 minutes. Uh, and you see in the story, there's a lot of quotes from him, but I have a lot more. But we just try to get into the nuts and bolts of this, and Jerry can talk a little bit. It's That's one of the things that, as a writer, you like, is that he can talk. He talks pretty clearly. Um, he always has something to say about a situation. Uh, so we um, we talked for 60 minutes. I got John Stanton in his office in, in uh, Peoria, for about 45 minutes um and then when i got uh scott service was later it's actually in japan because of the way the 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 thing um kind of shook out so i was like well you know let's let's do this and let's try and figure out um what what the tiktok was of it all um i don't really go into uh, a story with a preconceived notion you know i wanted to write about this step back but I wanted to write about the decision making into it. I wasn't, you know, 
I mean, like my agenda or my personal beliefs on whether this is a right or wrong has no influence in what I in, in my story selection. You know, this is what needs to be written about. I mean, like last year, people were upset that we wrote about the the playoff drought. Well, at the time when that became known that that was the longest streak in any major or any professional sport without a postseason drought, well, that's the story you have to write. And I felt like that the, writing about the step back, though it had been written about a lot in the off season. You know, trying to get some more details of it was important. So that's what we decided to write. I thought the uh, our layout stuff was really cool, obviously, uh, with the Legos and everything like that. Uh, props to the Tacoma guys, the Lego artists. I thought that was cool. Um, but let's get to the story. So, you know, we talked for 60 minutes with DePoto. I'm not going to get all that in there. Um, you know, I go into the, the whole why they did or how they did it. DePoto, um, looking... DePoto didn't think like the team was going to be 89 win caliber. And in his estimation, he wanted to build a team that wasn't just going to try and compete for the second wild card. That he wanted to build a team that was more viable and sustainable for um, winning the division. Now, obviously, winning the division is difficult with the Houston Astros. But his thinking is that two years from now, maybe the Astros aren't quite as young, aren't quite as talented. You lose some guys, some attrition, you know, Bregman, Correa, Springer all got free agency vying. I don't know that they can keep them all. And then, you know, maybe somebody like Verlander is gone after two years. So that's kind of what their thinking was, is that maybe in two years, the Astros won't be as good. But if you looked at the current Mariners roster from last season, two years from now or three years from now, is going to be real old, and guys are going to be gone from five th- or from uh, free agency, and so um, they kind of like, well, that's not going to work. And then if you look at the Yankees and Red Sox, they're loaded for years to come, and so obviously, if those two teams are as good as they are expected to be, and the continuing uh, just dumping of cash into their organization to to be better, well. That means that like winning the wild card is going to be difficult. So you'd actually host the wild card game. So essentially, the Mariners were always going to be playing for the second wild card. And the Mariners just didn't want, at least Apoto wanted to convince John Stanton that, that just trying to get to the second wild card every year and patching it together isn't a good scenario. And so that's kind of what they did. They, you know, I, I wrote about the 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 plan to reimagine imagine the rosters and such and Larry and I will discuss this a little bit as well like the decision making and that Stanton was reticent to to do this right away because you know what he won eighty nine games and it felt good to have uh, for him to have like meaningful games late in the year and all that stuff and I mean you know when when the Mariners were up in the in the second wild card standings and in in from j- early June and even into July you know that was that was a fun time at the park for them. You know, that, that they mattered. They were kind of important. Uh, the fade didn't, didn't sound so good, you know, when that, that didn't feel as good for them, I don't think. But um, so we just kind of went into that. I'm trying to think of some of the things I missed, like stuff that I wanted to add into the story that I couldn't or didn't because of just constraints and how it fit. Um, well, like, uh, like, I mean, I, you could have been more, I could have probably been even more clear on payroll. And, and this is something maybe I'll write because I still have a lot of leftover stuff from this. But the payroll situation, the Mariners, you know, I wrote that like, and this has been, there is a fair amount of acrimony over this is like the Mariners only wanted to add like one mid-level free agent. 
or that, you know, if they added one mid-level free agent to their team, you know, would that be good enough to win next year? And Service said he didn't think so. Uh, and then people, some people are angry about, well, only adding one mid-level free agent. Well, look, they're, they're not, they weren't going to go down the road of Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. They weren't going to make another 10-year commitment when essentially they had, you know, six years of Robbie Cano left and three years of Kyle Seeger, um, you know, and they weren't going to do that. And so, like, the mid-level guy, though, like a mid-level free agent we're talking about, like A.J. Pollock would have fit for that team. Like if they were bringing it back, I mean, they, they could have still even moved Gene Segura and, you know, or, you know, traded D Gordon or done something that that's another problem. They had some weird roster issues, but you know, their, their payroll, I think would have capped out at about 180 or 190 million. Like it mentions 165 or 155 to 165 as what DePoto gave his guys to work with. But in talking with some, with Stanton and some of those guys, I think they could have pushed it up to maybe 175, 180 in that range. Um, but what they were looking at is, you know, who are you going to add for that? And, and they've always been, and a lot of teams are hesitant to sign guys that are coming off qualifying offers. They don't like to lose that draft pick. It's one of the reasons why Dallas Keuchel is still out there as a free agent right now. Um, and so, you know, and I've always maintained this, that the Mariners to sign anybody in free agency have to pay 20% over market value, especially for a position player. Um, I just, that's just the way it is. The perception of the park is still bad, regardless if, if it's not as bad as it used to be, but it still lingers there. The location of Seattle, the travel that comes with playing in Seattle, that gets around baseball too. So you have to overpay to get guys to come here, especially position players. So I, I, I don't know, like I, I'm trying to think of like what free agencies, free agents they would have looked at, you know, do I think Patrick Corbin isn't somebody they really wanted to go to because of the of the the length that he was looking for in a national league pitcher coming to the American League, um, I mean you know Keiko probably was a fit on some level. Uh, you know they had some roster issues with their starters. You have Leak under control or that's under contract. Marco, uh, they signed Wade LeBlanc to an extension, which wasn't that expensive. So that you know if they wanted to go out and address that starting rotation issue, they could do that by signing somebody. But you still have Felix on the roster. I mean, he's not going anywhere, and, and I, it's it's a burden, and they're just not going to, at twenty seven million dollars a year. They weren't just going to DFA him; they were going to try and extract some value out of him, even if they were trying to go for it. So, I think their logic is this, and and I've I wrote about this. And I tried to explain it a little bit, and I know Depoto did. This is their logic. They believed. That if they waited and went for it one more year, which I've said that I kind of maintained early on that they should do, that if they waited and went for it for one more year and failed to make the wild card, that it would have set them back even further. Because they're going to have to rebuild at some point. Um, They were going to have to rebuild a little bit. And that they felt like if you go one more year with James Paxton and Mike Zanino, neither of whom wanted to sign extensions, and I don't think they really want to sign Paxton to an extension at being age 30 and everything, that they lose value if you try to trade him after next season because they only have one year left before they become free agents. And that Robinson Cano is a year older. And, and really, they didn't think Robinson Cano was tra- tradable when they made this decision to do a step back. They didn't think that. Uh, you know. But even Gene Segura, you don't know what you're going to get with Gene. You're going to get the Gene that was an unbelievable all-star player for the first three months of the season, or are you going to get the petulant guy that was upset about everything and, and hit like 250 the end of the season? Um, 
how much is Edwin Diaz going to have value beyond after last year? It'll never be higher than it was this offseason. I mean, you say 57 games, and there's a belief from some people outside the organization that he's a blown arm waiting to happen because of his throwing style. Um, you know, so a lot of the guys they moved, they moved on because they felt like at this point, that's when their value was best, that if they waited one year, the value would decrease. They wouldn't get as many prospects, so in turn would make the rebuild longer. So that's kind of their thinking a little bit and they got pretty good prospects in return i mean they had to throw diaz into that but i think kelnick justin dunn you know those are guys that can help them justice sheffield obviously i you know not all these prospects are going to pop and be great players but even if you get 50 percent those are that's important even and they don't have to be all-stars they just have to be viable big league contributors on a daily basis or a, a regular start basis. That's what you're looking for. You know, if you get the one that pops into a superstar, that's 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 the bonus. I mean, that's what their hope is with Kelnick or Julio Rodriguez, that one of those young guys pops and becomes a superstar. Um, so I, I get it from that sense. Uh, somebody, I noticed in the comments, everybody's saying, oh, the, the Mariners, because I wrote that they've never really done this since 2001. Everybody point out to 2000, after the 2008 season that they were rebuilding. When they lost 101 games in 2008, they went out and traded for Eric Bedard. They got rid of their best prospect, a guy they believed was going to be a good player, their everyday center fielder, Adam Jones, and who turned out to be an all-star center fielder. They, so they, they were going for it in 2008, and they were terrible, and they were awful, and the roster messed up. So when they brought in Jack Sorensic in 2009, they didn't say rebuild. They didn't even say that. Howard Lincoln would never say the word rebuild. What they told Jack is, you need to reduce payroll. And that's what Jack maintained. I mean, I covered that year. Jack often said, we're just reducing payroll. Howard Lincoln came out and said, we have to reduce payroll. They were the first team with a $100 million payroll to lose 100 games. But at no point was that a rebuild. That was just being terrible. That was just saying, look, we're not going to spend the money this year that we spent the last few years. And we're going to let it kind of marinate. Uh, and try and play these guys, but that's not a rebuild. If they were rebuilding that year, they would have traded off Felix Hernandez at his valuable prime, you know, when his value is highest. If they, you know, if they they were truly trying to rebuild, they would have traded Eric Bedard again, you know, to try and get something for him. That's not a rebuild. And if you think about it, they were better than expected in 2009 with Russell Brannion and those guys. So then what did they do in 2010? They went for it again. They went and spent the money on Sean Figgins. They traded for Cliff Lee. So that was a rebuild. That wasn't a rebuild. That was going for it. And when that didn't work, they just they just just they just tore it apart. But that's not a rebuild. It's not a rebuild. They just don't equate a terrible season or terrible results with a rebuild. A rebuild would have been selling off the parts that had value. Franklin Gutierrez, after the 2009 season, had massive value. Felix Hernandez, after the 2009 season, had massive value. If you trade them, then you're rebuilding. If you're tearing it down and rebuilding. What the Mariners were doing was just trying to piece it together every year. You know, what would happen is they would go into every season trying to be good, trying to get some stuff, and then if it didn't work, they trade off the pieces in hopes that it would get better. But that's not necessarily rebuilding. That's just kind of reacting to the results. And so that 
you know, I, I'm just failing to see that. Like a true rebuild is moving pieces, trying to get younger and trying to get prospects. Part of the reason also that the Mariners didn't do that is because they were so terrible. They had a bunch of high draft picks. And if you recall, at one point they had the second best farm system. So they, they you know, they were trying to piece it all together with those young players that they thought were going to pop. But it was not like the rebuild, like the way they're doing this now or a rebuild like what the Cubs did or the Astros or even the Brewers of late. They didn't do that. It was just they were just honestly, they were they had no concept of what they were trying to do. As we've often said, they just tried to bandaid it together with duct tape and hope and dreams. You know, they 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 go out and take a flyer on Ricky Weeks or, you know, you go and trade for Ben Broussard. Is that that's not it's not a rebuild. It's just not really having a, a complete direction. I mean, like like I said, the the years when Zarenzik first came there, it wasn't the concept of tear it down and rebuild. It was just like the mayor just said, screw it. We're not paying as much in payroll on the big league level as we did. So find some bargains. Try and win that way as much as you can. But we're not spending the money. And so if you think about it, they tried that way a little bit. They got decent. And then when a bunch of these guys didn't get good, Brad Miller, Nick Franklin, you know, Danny Holton gets hurt, then they started to spend the money and try the free agent-wise too. Um, and that didn't work. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't, I don't know if Jerry DePoto is the right guy for the job to do it. But he, he seems to have an idea of where he wants to get to. Um, and there's been and they've discussed it. They haven't been afraid to sit there and say, look, this isn't working. We have to try something different because our ultimate goal is the World Series. Um, and, you know, the previous ownership group didn't say that very often. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know that it'll work. I don't know that. I don't know that it. I mean, I understand the reasoning for all their decisions and logically having been around baseball and understanding where everybody's doing it now, it seemed like the only way that they, they could get better. And that if, and Larry and I discussed this, say they say they keep this all together this year and they, they make it to the wild card game, but then they lose. Is it really going to the playoffs? Sure, you snapped the streak, but did you really feel like they were in the playoffs? And, and then what happens after that? Are they any good after that? You know, they, their roster was getting old fast. Uh, I think, you know, that once they were able to kind of get out from Cano's contract, that really helped this entire deal uh, going forward. I think Cano will be good this year, and he might be good next year, but we've all seen how it's kind of trending. Um, and and maybe, maybe their ambitions in all this are different. Look, when DePoto came in, and he had Cano, Cruz, Seager, Felix. He wasn't able to trade those guys. It's not like he could have walked in and said, like, I want to trade Felix um, and sell that to ownership. One, it was because it was the previous regime. It wasn't Stanton. It was it was Lincoln. The, the, he's under orders to do as they say, and they wanted to go for it and try and win. But without, you know, increasing payroll. And that's, you know, you can you can beat up on the Mariners a little bit for that, that they, you know, they have not done enough at times when they feel like the, the roster is good enough to supplement that, um, especially the previous regime and even this regime, too, because they were still part of that ownership group. Um, but, yeah, it's but 
a GM, for the most part, doesn't get to decide. They ultimately get to decide the direction of the, the organization. They can put together a plan, which DePoto did, and like this one for the step back. But oftentimes, it's the ownership that says, look, we're, we want to try and win now. We want you to try and win now. Now, they limit them in that regard. Like, oh, we want you to win now, but you only have a budget of $165 million, So figure out a way, but that's what you have to work with. You know, um, any major decision that comes to payroll, money commitments, direction of team has to be approved by ownership. No GM, and this just, that doesn't include the just, ex- include, or that doesn't just mean the Mariners. Like, no GM in baseball just gets to go off and do whatever they want without ownership approval and overshadow overship oversight and i think that sometimes get lost that you know this is all that do i think that depoto and service want the like the idea of a rebuild because it's kind of there they can finally make it their own sure i i think so i mean i think that's something that you know as like any management group you want to have your own people in there and do it your own way and for their first three years of their regime, they've had to kind of base it on what was still left over from when Jack Zarenzik was here. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that that's an issue. But whether or not this is good or bad, I don't know. that. The, I mean, like some fans think it's good that they're doing this. Other fans think it's bad. I, I think what will be instructive is how they develop these players in the next year, year and a half how they progress through their minor leagues. And more importantly, look, if, if these guys get decent and you build a roster around it, then what happens in the next, in 2021, going into the 2021 season is, do they spend money on a free agent? Do they use this payroll flexibility they have um, to go out and supplement with pieces that will kind of be finishing products? Um, it's one thing to develop and, and, and draft and, and acquire all these pieces, but you still have to have finishing products to kind of go. And whether or not the Mariners do that is what we'll see going forward. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, you know, they, they talk a good game. And they, you know, that's something that DePoto and, and Service and, and now Stanton, they talk a good game. But what we'll see is whether they're able to take this process or this idea that they have and actually put it into action and and generate the results that they say are coming down the road. Um, and not all these guys will pop on. All these prospects will be great. But if you know, you better get some of them to be pretty good to be big contributors. Because if not, if this isn't working, then you're right. And a lot of people are right. They're really going to be uh, without uh, a postseason spot and really lost. But at least there's flexibility. I think had they tried to go for it this year and not gotten there, they probably don't get as much back in return if they decide to sell off pieces next year and you're looking at an even longer rebuild. Like if you look at a lot of the guys they brought in, Sheffield, um, Shed Long, Justin Dunn, um, Jake Fraley, a lot of these guys should – you know, be major league ready within the next year and a half, year and a half to two years. So that does bring you uh, an influx of young talent. Um, and you know, you never know if they can get something for D. Gordon or Jay Bruce at the deadline or something like that too. If these guys play well or Edwin Encarnacion. So I'm, I hate the idea of like having the hot take. Oh, this is bad. This is good. And I also hate the idea of oh, let's just wait and see how it all plays out. I think the understanding of where they're at and the decision that went into that process is fine, but 
it's more than just the decision making or the process. Now it's the actions that you take, uh, that you've done all this stuff, that you made all these moves. How do you make sure to lessen the the possibility of failure? And, and that's something we'll have to wait and see. You know, does all this new age stuff that they talk about in their their minor league system translate into success? All this new age thinking, yoga, meditation, you know, all the technology. Does that translate into success at the big league level? The Mariners have had plenty of prospects over the years that have been stars in AAA and could never produce at the big league level. How do they make that, make sure that those guys transition to success at the big league level? That's what we have to wait and see. And And I don't know where... I have seen no evidence that it's going to get better, but I have no evidence to say that it won't. So, you know, we'll see what goes on from there. But it should be interesting. I, I mean, I've, I've never really covered this situation like this. I've only covered teams that were trying to piece it together and, and trying to find ways to win. And it hasn't worked. So maybe trying something different is, is the, the most ideal thing for them. I mean, look, not everybody doesn't like it. Not Some people are going to like it. Some people are going to hate it. A lot of people are going to complain regardless. But, you know, that's my thoughts, and that's kind of what the process was of going into this story. I'm going to try and write some more off this stuff if I can uh, and, and see if I can make it logical. i got to go back through and look at all my notes. I mean, like I said, I had 60 minutes of transcription from these guys, so there is probably definitely some things we'd add in there. Um, but from there... No, let's. Okay, I've talked long enough. Let's. I've talked long enough. Let's get to Larry Stone. We'll talk about Ichiro, the step back, the upcoming season, and some other stuff. All right, let's welcome in venerable columnist, my good buddy, and now um, caregiver, nursing caregiver, Larry Stone. Larry is uh, currently taking care of his wife, who had a shoulder surgery much like mine. And if I recall the pain I was in from having that shoulder <laughs> surgery, you are going to be very busy, Larry. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not only caring for my wife, I'm caring for our dog that had surgery last week. So um, I've got two patients that I'm responsible for. Wow. Uh, well, right now, the uh, the morphine is doing its work, and she's not in too much pain. But uh, when, when that wears off... Uh, I'm, it could be it could be tough, but I'm I'm trying to be as helpful as I can and uh, and help her pull through this. Remember, Larry, it's your fault no matter what it is. When somebody's <laughs> sick or recovering, it's your fault. Well, we've been married 34 years. I, I learned that that one a long time ago. All right, Larry, are you excited for opening day? <laughs> I am. Well, yeah. Heck well, yeah. I guess the second opening day, reopening. Yeah. Can we call it you know reimagination, reopening day? <laughs> well, you were. Uh, it's the, only the second Mariner opening day that I've missed uh, because they were both in Japan. Now, I guess they've been on the road a few other times that I've missed. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the start of a new season at home, the home opener is always a, is always exciting. Even if, the, even if the teams, even if you know the team's not going to be very good, that's the one day when you fill the ballpark and there's optimism and excitement. And, um, and it's also it means summer is around the corner, which is my favorite season by far, and uh, all that stuff. It means there's going to be six months of baseball ahead too. So it's all it's it's only good things on opening day. My favorite season is the off season 
Except for when, <laughs> except for when I started covering Jerry Depoto, then it became not my favorite season. Right, there is no off season with Jerry Depoto. Um, any thoughts on the the Mariners playing Japan? Did you stay up for both games or just the one? I stayed up for both games. As a matter of fact, I was in Pullman, Washington. We that's where our dog had his surgery at the uh, WSU Veterinary Hospital. So I drove her, or actually my wife and son drove her and dropped her off on a Monday, and then I went and picked her up, and I stayed in a hotel in Pullman and got up in my hotel in Pullman at 2.30 and watched the watched the game. Uh, well, what else are you going to do in Pullman? I mean, Exactly, honestly. exactly. And then drove home with the dog after the, the surgery, and... Uh, Got up the next morning as well and watched. So I watched. I watched them all. Both games. I kind of fell asleep. Uh, the first game I made it through about seven innings, and then the next game I waited until the whole Ichiro thing was done, and then I fell asleep again. So I can't say I watched uh, every inning, but I I watched the bulk of it. From a from like insider standpoint, Larry and I, well, you know, we found out that Ichiro was going to retire um, after that game. Uh, I think maybe the day before. I don't even know. I couldn't tell you what day it was half the time I was in Japan. But we kind of found out about it. So, obviously, in that case, we went into kind of um, being proactive and, and writing a story that he was going, you know, writing stuff about his retirement. Truth be told, I'd already started writing it about two weeks before. I had written kind of the background of um, of a retirement story because I figured, you know, that was the only logical outcome on some level. Uh, and then that day before he announced it, I really kind of started cranking that morning of the game. I started cranking and kind of just basically finishing it to the point where all I had to do was add in uh, a few different things. Uh, and I know you were already kind of formulating a column in your head as well, weren't you? I was, but I didn't actually uh, start writing it. Slacker. Time or anything. <laughs> uh, I was told that uh, they'd want it by about noon. So after staying up, and watching the game, I took a nap. I think I got up around eight or nine, and then I, I banged out the column. Uh, uh, really, for the most part, I, it was all just sort of stream of consciousness thoughts from that morning. I thought about it a little, but I hadn't written anything down or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have the. I had more of a luxury that you didn't have writing for the newspaper. The the. And the the internet on the actual news story, I was able to reflect on it, uh, ruminate uh, a little bit longer than than you did, and uh, I, it made me regret I wasn't there. To be honest, I would have loved to have witnessed that that whole spectacle, and um, you you did a great job of uh, of summing it all up and, and sort of making you feel like you were there. Why? Thank you. Yeah, it was really cool. Like, I mean, to be there for it all. Um... You know, just being down on the field when he was running around thanking the fans and stuff like that. That was cool. And um, and so, I, I don't know. I Yeah, you're right. It was, in that sense, it was a little overwhelming because I think I wrote, you know, I wrote the story that he was retiring, which I updated about three times. And then, you know, I had to take video of it. And then um, I wrote a story on Kikuchi's reaction, which I thought was really sweet. You know, him crying. I mean, he cried mm-hmm. again uh, when we talked to him later. And then... 
I did another reaction from like D Gordon and other teammates, Griffey. And then I also had to write a game story. So I wrote yeah, a little yeah. bit. And I think I wrote something on Sean Armstrong being injured. So I had some stuff. I think I got done writing about 3.30 in the morning. It was funny. I, I had to leave the park at about midnight because um, they were kind of kicking everybody out. And uh, so I was like, oh, I got to get out of here, you know. And mm-hmm. then I by then I'd missed the, all the trains that, that stopped running. So I got a cab back to my hotel. So I get back to my hotel where my mom and my aunt are staying. And I basically just wake them up. Uh, I poured myself a drink in the hotel and then I wrote till three thirty or four in the morning trying to get all that stuff done. I was a little out of it the next day to be say the least. It's such a glamorous life life we lead yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I do your job for free. <laughs> but no. people don't understand I mean I could I could appreciate the logistics of of that and being in a foreign country, a country that's foreign to you yeah. and you know not knowing the language and how to get around it's uh, the logistics are not as easy as you think they are. Just to getting kicked out of the ballpark and having a, to figure out how to get back to the hotel is not easy stuff like that. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of stress in those kind of situations, which, which I can appreciate. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, the and, and the, uh, the thing that I, you know, I was in, I was in Japan in 2000 when the, when they had the first, uh, regular season games and figuring out the, uh, the deadline was always a puzzle. You just never quite knew yeah. when you were writing for what day's paper or anything like that. Uh, and I, I guess it was when when you finished your stories. It was it was early morning here, so uh, you obviously didn't make the next day's paper, but you had to write for online and then figure out something to write for the next day's paper, which would published after they had already played as. The, another game yeah you know when your story on first game appeared they had already finished game two yeah uh, so that's that's a challenge as well yeah we were it was it was different the logistics were different and everything else it was cool obviously it was the trip of a lifetime but yeah um it would have been nice to have you there we could have split it up a little bit and i think you would have done it. yeah i mean just because like you want to be there for the moment when you're writing that stuff you want to be there for that moment you know uh, absolutely I think if we had known definitively that each row was going to retire, we probably would have gone. I mean, you know, I, I had a, a tweet the other day where where uh, uh, Service admitted that he had kind of he, – he didn't just find out that night that each row was retiring, that he was going to uh, – he had known for a while. And I, I got a bunch of uh, responses from people saying things like, duh, everybody knew. Of course he was going to retire. But I don't think it was that cut and dry. If he had – if he had hit 400 this spring, I don't think he would have oh. just walked walked away. Oh no, uh, you're I, exactly right. And 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 those who have been around him know, and you know this as well as I do, he will change his mind on things. He will do the unexpected because that's what he's always done. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yes, that was once he once he hit 075 for the spring. Yes, that was the inevitable. Uh, conclusion but we didn't no one knew for sure whether he was going to announce it in japan whether he was going to come back and maybe play in the couple of games in seattle and have a farewell here so so the mechanics of it were uh were a mystery and again i repeat that i i don't i think he went into spring training with the intent of trying to make the team for the full season maybe maybe that will prove to be wrong but uh i think it became apparent to him that he had that he had lost it you know he talks he's talked so often about playing until he was 50 uh, but i think the realization 
must have hit him that he was done and that to keep going was just going to tarnish his legacy and embarrass him. And, and, you know, he did the, he did the right thing and, and it turned into a spectacular ending that I think will even, you know, enhance his, his legacy. Can anybody justify not voting for him on a first ballot for the hall of fame? We'll find a way to justify it, but not, not uh, correctly. There's no way, uh, First of all, he got 3,000 hits in MLB, so you can't say, oh, his major league career wasn't good enough or long enough. He broke a major record of hits in a season with 262, uh, 10 All-Star games, 10 gold gloves, 10 silver sluggers, 10 uh, 300 averages all in a row to start his career. And then you throw in what he did in Japan, and you combine those stats uh, – if you want to, you don't even have to. If you think that's bogus and you just judge him on what he did in the major leagues, he's a no-brainer first ballot Hall of Famer. So I would uh, to to not vote for him would would to me would just be prejudice or ignorance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's just the the scope of what he did and to accumulate three three thousand hits as fast as he accumulated them. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing, and and you know, you think about it. He had a late start. It's not like he started when everybody else did. I mean, think about how many. Like, if he came to the U.S. as a, a you know, like if he if he was came to the U.S. as a twenty two year old, how many hits? I mean, you know, it, it would have been amazing to think about how many hits he could have accumulated. Um, yes, he would have I mean, broken Rose's record for sure. Yeah. Um, you have any favorite moments for him of him? Favorite moments, uh, well, the the Terrence Long throw, uh, the inside the park. Uh, yeah, you were there for that run. one. I was there for that one in uh, San Francisco. Pac Bell, I think it was called. I believe you won an award for that gamer. Did I? I think so. I don't, I don't remember that. I got so many of them. No. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just award winning columnist apparently, <laughs> huh? Hmm. No, that's uh, I. I honestly don't remember that. Uh-huh, sure. um, let's see. Wildly uh, successful. <laughs> there's probably a few others. I guess uh, that have slipped my mind as we, when you hit me with that. But those, uh, just that first spring, I think. Um, when the mystery and the spectacle and all that, when all the Japanese media came over and we'd never seen anything like that in Seattle and Peoria and just the, the level of interest and the slow start he got. And when he told Lou, you know, Lou told him, you got to pull the ball. You got to show me you could pull the ball and he hit the home run to right field and, and said satisfied Lou. And, you know, just the, the, the whole, that whole first year is kind of a, a strong memory for me. Yeah, I mean, it was a record-setting year, too. Yeah, they won 116 games. He was the MVP, uh, won the batting title. Uh, and and just the way he played was so unique, too. The, you know, he, he, the way he would be uh, almost on the move to first base while he was swinging, kind of like a slashing softball player. And uh, the way he would beat out, uh, you know, if, until they realized how fast he was out of the box and down the line, he would beat out slow rollers to short, routine grounders to second. And uh, uh, it was just a it was a different way of, of playing the game, which, as you know, some of the some of his teammates 
kind of chafed at as time went by. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really it's really fascinating to see the change in perception of Ichiro from within the game. I mean, now he's like this honored, revered elder statesman who everybody is in awe of and respects and loves. But, you, you know, you know that when he was in his heyday here in Seattle, that wasn't always the case. There were teammates who, who didn't like the way he played the game, that didn't like that he didn't die for balls or in their mind or run into walls and, and that sort of thing. And it drove, drove some guys crazy. Yeah. I mean, there are certain pitchers that didn't like him. Teammates didn't like him. They felt like, you know, you know, he would bunt with two outs or he'd bunt with runner on third, things like that. They didn't like some of the things he did and his, and the way he viewed the game was different. I mean, it just was different than a lot of people were used to. And, you know, back then, some players just weren't very accepting. I think it's a lot different now. I think players are more open-minded to things. Uh, but back then, yeah, I mean, if you strayed from the the unwritten rules or the way the game is supposed to be played, then you were viewed as um, an outsider and somebody bucking the system. And it wasn't very well – it wasn't taken well by a lot of guys. Yeah, that's a – to me, that's kind of a – weakness of baseball it's the same thing you see with the uh, home run you know bat flips and home run demonstrations and stuff like uh, god forbid you show joy and 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 flair and charisma and excitement for some reason that's that's frowned upon and i think baseball needs to, to move beyond that uh you know viewers fans and uh, the conservative nature of baseball sometimes is maddening. Uh, all right, that's enough, Ichiro. I mean, I don't know if I have a favorite moment. I think some of the times, like, you know, there were times where I would get legitimately pissed off at him, like dealing with him post-game or trying to set up an interview pre-game was almost impossible. And, like, the times you wanted him to be, you know, sometimes when you really needed him to be himself and, and be kind of interesting in, in comments, he wouldn't be. And I don't know if it was a game or whatever. And I didn't like how he treated the Japanese media at times. And granted, they were on him at all times. But, you know, the uh, doing his interviews with his back to them and stuff like that, I didn't like feel was very respectful. But, you know, in the end, I do think like when he came back around, he was a significantly different guy than he was. And even like I know after talking to him when he went to New York, and everything i think that was a lot different now like it his it's just kind of his perception of dealing with all this stuff um changed and maybe it's because the spotlight was off of him so much yeah you know i went to to the to florida to to miami to do a big story on him when he was approaching three thousand hits and he was so relaxed and so friendly it was a it was a different guy and I do, I mean, you change, you're, you're a different person when you're 40 than when you're 25. I think part of it was just... I was a lot more life. fun when I was 25. <laughs> yeah, they? yeah, yeah, I miss that, that Ryan Dillard. Yeah. Uh, but a big part of it, I'm sure, was, I think we maybe underestimate the pressure he was under at the beginning of his career. He, he was carrying the, 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 the torch for a whole country to, to prove that uh, a position player could go and succeed and i yeah I, th- I think he put a lot of a lot of weight on his shoulders and uh you know that that'll make you a little uptight and then by that point in his career he had accomplished uh, so much i think he he relaxed a little bit and he wasn't he, he uh, in his own and i think and I, I think that continued when uh 
when when he came back to the Mariners last year, I was talking to to Edgar Martinez earlier this year, and he said that he 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 talked <laughs> he talked more to he had better conversations with with Ichiro in like the first month after he came back than he did the entire time he was uh, here the first time around. Um, you know when they were teammates for for four or five years, so. Uh, it, it, I think he a little. He kind of humanized himself a little bit more. I think, but uh, still was. Uh, yeah, I agree with you on the the media things. There were some things that did drive you crazy. You wish, uh, you, you know, you said the way he treated the Japanese media. Sometimes he didn't treat some of the American media oh, so, yeah. good, so well either. Um, there's some examples that we've both seen. Yeah, but but you know, I always try to put myself in there shoes as well with when uh, i don't think anyone can understand what each row what it's like to be each row and and uh and have probably media around you 24 7 if they could and as much as long as they can within reason and i think you it's only natural that you push back a little bit all right well we can that'll be enough each row we'll discuss him more when he Hall of Fame or whatever comes up, uh, which he because he played in these two games, he's not eligible till after the until the twenty twenty five class. Yeah, that uh, he the, the rule is pretty uh, cut and dry. If you play any part of a season, you lose that year. Your retirement clock does not start, so it doesn't start until. Uh, and I double checked this with the uh, Hall of Fame because some people were wondering if they might waive that rule because he only played two games, but no, they will not. So his five years does not start until 2020. So 2020, 21, 22, 23, 24, and then he goes in in 25. I would assume first ballot, and uh, and and you will go cover that because I anticipate being retired by then. Oh no. No, no, no. You'll retire when I say you can retire. If your wife keeps having surgeries and your dog keeps yeah. having surgeries, you won't be retiring. <laughs> That's uh, true. Yeah. I. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, all right. So we're done with Ichiro. Um, second opening day. Any thoughts? Oh, so, okay. Our, I'm going to talk about this in the lead-in. Uh, we, you know, we often record this out of order. I, I talk to Larry first, and then I do the lead-in to the podcast, and and um, then to the, the close. Um, our special section came out last Sunday. It was, I thought, a really cool design with Legos, which Larry didn't understand because he didn't have Legos as a kid. He only had a stick. <laughs> I had a stick. Yeah, yeah we're, Billy, stealing Billy that for, we're stealing that for yeah. Barry, Billy Gardell. I had a stick. <laughs> Larry didn't even have a stick. He had a straw and, um, and a rock. Um, but... The gist of it, and we've, and I mean, we've talked about this so often, was um, the step back. Um, now that we've kind of been through spring training and we've talked with Jerry and Scott, are you understanding their kind of reasoning for this? And, and what are your thoughts about the process thus far that you've seen? Well, I absolutely understand it, and I, for the most part, I. In- it or support it because I was writing all along that they were playing for one, you know, they're they playing for a second wild card berth. If you were being realistic, they didn't have a good enough team to catch the, the Astros. They didn't have a good enough team to be better than the Red Sox or, or the Yankees uh, who, who were going to win the division. And the set and the other one was probably going to win 95 games. Whoops. Sorry about that. Um, 
and uh, so and you know the 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 A's had had been better than. <laughs> you hear that? Yes, it's all right. <laughs> That's all right. Um, the A's had been better than them last year. I don't know if they will this year, but on paper they're going to be. So uh, I think to step back and and stock up on prospects because they weren't going to. They didn't have anything in their farm system. That was the other thing. Their core was getting older. Uh, Cano and Cruz and Felix and those guys, Seager. They, the farm system was barren, so it, it, to me, it, it looked like they were they were poised for a precipitous fall. And uh, I think getting a bunch of prospects and and guys like uh, Santana who who have some high upside, and um, you know, at, maybe at the expense of this season and, and next season. Uh, the key, you know, as we've talked about before, is you've got to you've got to get the right guys. And I think when I saw those guys in spring training that my uh, assessment went up a little bit. Uh, they, they look like, most of them look legit. Uh, Kel, Kelnick and, and Julio Rodriguez and Justice Sheffield and Shed uh, Long. And um, all those guys look like, you know, they look like potentially great athletes, great uh, high upside guys, which hasn't always been the case when you saw, we've again, we've talked about it, but when you saw, you know, Justin Smoke and Jesus Montero, Dustin Ackley, your your first thought wasn't, "Wow, these guys are studs." <laughs> you know, they uh, their stats said they were going to be good, but but not necessarily. Uh, they weren't at that impressive upon first sight, and and you know, eye test can can be very misleading. You know, look at a guy like Dustin Pedroia or somebody like that. But uh, for the most part, they the, the, these guys looked impressive. So. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, if you remember talking about it, I was kind of that person who thought they should just try and go for it for one more year. Like, mm-hmm. roll the same kind of team out there. Maybe supplement. Um, but, you know, if you, when I looked at it, and, you know, I listened to DePoto and those guys, and then I, I talked with some other people outside of the organization, some other people within baseball, and they kind of pointed to that. A lot of the same things that, that I'd heard from the Mariners, that, look, they were going to have to rebuild regardless but they weren't going to have the pieces to rebuild in two years when all these guys got really old and they weren't going to get anything back. I mean, they were going to have to basically, they were going to have to rebuild through the draft because all these guys that, that have value that they were able to trade this offseason wouldn't have that value even a year from now, like somebody like Paxton and Zanino who have two years of arbitration eligibility starting this year and next, if they waited one more year and they only had one year of arbitration eligibility before free agency, teams aren't going to give up a prospect for just one year, you know, but they'll, you know, not a good one, but a team like the Yankees will give up just a Sheffield. If you get two years of James Paxton, you know, not just one. And the same with Mike Zanino, especially somebody like the Rays who really valued Zanino. They're not the type of team to just, trade a good prospect for one year of a guy because they're they're financially they're not set that way and they have to make decisions based on a little bit more than just the periphery so in that regard i looked at it and then also once they were able to trade robinson cano or the prospect of even being able to trade robinson cano came viable they had to do it i like cano i think he's going to be a good player this year and he might even be a good player next year but the amount of money they owed him 120 million dollars still 
starting this year. And they were able to get out from under that with paying 20 million of it. So they're basically saving a hundred million dollars for a guy that was going to be bad in his final three or four years. And I think yeah. once you had that, you had to run. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. That was, that was like the perfect storm of opportunity. <laughs> yeah to have his agent of all people uh, his Robinson former agent. agent become the general manager of the Mets wanting to make a splash they're they're uh you know the, the Yankees have all the buzz in New York they need to do something big and uh they were willing to pay so much of his contract I mean I think that trade will turn out to be a uh well, could turn out to be DePoto's best for for shedding not only for shedding the contract but for picking up uh you know a really good prospect a guy who has extremely high upside and the other aspect of this this whole thing that you pointed out in your in your story in the special section is that in a couple of years uh when some of these big contracts are have run their course they should have tremendous amount of room to hit the free agent market so i mean you look at this rebuild and you think you tend to think of the players that they have now and the players they have coming through the system but they could supplement those guys in two years if the if the prospects uh, advance the way they hope they do and they're ready to to break into the major leagues you could get one two real payroll flexibility so uh, you can hasten the, the the rebuild even more. Yeah, I mean, say, say you know, say they all these a bunch of these guys have popped, and you have a a pretty good team, and you go into the twenty twenty one season, and you're like, look, we need to finish this team off. There, and there's a shortstop out there. Maybe they get into the bidding for Carlos Correa. You know, if Correa is a free agent or, you know, if Alex Bregman is out on the free agent market, maybe they go after Alex Bregman to finish off their third base piece that they need or something like that. I mean, that's that's one thing that they can do. You know, I do think that the Mariners will probably never go down that road of a 10 year deal again. Very, I mean, I just can't see them doing it. I don't think many teams will do that. Um, but. You know that they'll have some flexibility and they'll be able to commit some dollars to that. It is curious that a lot of teams are locking up guys now, um, so they can avoid that. But yeah, I mean that's that's part of it. I I just think like th- th- I think you know the Gene Segura contract extension was a mistake. I think it, they misread the situation. I think they misread the player and his intentions and how that money would affect Gene. Um, they were already committed to Cano. They were already committed to Seager. I was just more money. So they were able to peel away from him too. I mean, they were – if you look at it, they they were going to have committed money of $500 million to about five players over the course of their you know their contracts. 240 to Cano, $175 million to Felix, $100 million to Seager, $57 million to Cruz, and like $70 million to Segura. That's a significant amount of money. And when four or five players take up $90 million of your payroll, you're screwed in terms of adding more. Because, look, these guys, and they could. I don't know that they have the money that the Dodgers and Yankees have. They could go more than $200 million maybe. But you don't want to flirt with the luxury tax because that's way punitive for teams like this. But even at $180 million, that doesn't leave you with much. If you have all those guys on there and you bump your payroll up to $180 million, given, like, Colome was going to make nine million. 
Paxton was going to make eight million. Zanino was going to make seven million. It just there wasn't a lot of room to do much more than if they were to try and bring back. And you got to get something for these guys while they have value because they don't have a farm system. Like if you look at their farm system, say they don't make any of these trades, you roll out these same guys, maybe you go get A.J. Pollock, you lose a draft pick if you sign A.J. Pollock or anybody with a qualifying offer, and then your three best prospects are Kyle Lewis, Evan White, and Julio Rodriguez. Those are your three best, and after that it gets pretty thin. Now if you look at their top 15 or 10, it's a lot better. And so that's kind of where I looked at, you know, that's where I kind of started to see the reasoning for this. Yeah, but it's still... Uh, it's oh, it's a still, huge risk. It's Yeah, it's kind of fraught with danger. For one thing, a bunch of teams are basically doing the same thing. Oh, yes. So uh, it's kind of a race to see whose prospects develop faster and whose develop better. Um, and it's also a particular risk with this group because of the playoff drought. You're already talking about a 17-year drought, and you're basically saying we're going to extend it by two years. I mean... DePoto is saying that it could all come together next year, but uh, no. that, that's that's highly optimistic. So you're probably adding two. You know, I think more realistic would be 2021 to really be a contending team, and that's if everything works out well, uh, works out the way you want it to work out. And there's always going to be setbacks. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be guys who don't develop like you thought they were going to develop. So you're 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 right off the top saying. This 17-year drought is going to become a 19-year drought, barring a miracle. So, uh, I mean, you kind of detailed in your story how they had to convince John Stanton, the the CEO, that this was this was a wise move, and I can understand why he would push back against that as the as the one at the top of the organization who has to explain to fans why we are trading our five or six best players. Other than the uh, the notoriety of the drought, though. If you get to the say you get to the second you say you win the second wild card and you go to New York and you get your ass handed yeah. to you and you mm-hmm. lose is that really breaking I mean other than the, the <laughs> notoriety of the saying look the streak yeah. is over we made the playoffs but did you did you really make the playoffs <laughs> we would just write the Mariners who have not won a playoff game in 18 years yes. or who have not had a home playoff game in 18 years or something like that yeah. so there'd be there'd be a new barrier that would uh, that would stand. It wouldn't be quite as uh, humiliating as not making the playoffs at all. But yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. But I mean, you can't. You can also be a wild card team and make it to the World Series. Oh yeah. Too. I mean, I mean that's happened. So you know, you've got to get in there to 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 compete. Um, and but, but I mean, like that, that. Remember the Pirates run? They only played in one playoff series. You know, yeah, that, that that group of pirates players that was a nice little pirates team, and it was it was a great story because they had twenty straight years of losing seasons, not just not <laughs> making the postseason. All right, I mean I understand Mariners fans unhappy. Twenty, you know, and they had and the pirates have been around longer. They've played in a World Series. They won a World Series. That's fine. They had twenty straight years of losing seasons. Yeah, then, starting in '93 when they traded, or when uh, Barry Bonds went to the Giants, and that's yes. when it all started. Yeah, and so they ended that streak. But they they lost twice in the wild card game, and then they had the one year where they played against the Cardinals and lost that and lost that series too. So I mean, like for all the years and all those guys they accumulated in a rebuild, they never were able to keep it together for more than I think six total playoff games. 
Yeah, that just shows what a crapshoot it is. You, you, you could, I think we had a chart in our special sections of the longest droughts, and there was I'd forgotten how long some were, like uh, Kansas Royals. City. Yeah, was, but but Kansas City, uh, they went through this and they wild card like that the game against the A's. They come back and win that game and make it all the way to the World Series in Game Seven with the. The runner on uh, what third or third base or second mm-hmm. base, and and then the next year they come back and win it all. So, uh, you know, the pirate the, with a break here or there, the Pirates could have done that too. Uh, and then the, the Royals are a bad team again, and they're going through the whole recycle thing again, re, rebuild thing again. So, uh, your window of opportunity is not always great, and. And sometimes it doesn't work out, and sometimes it does. It. I mean, everyone in baseball will tell you that postseason, postseason is just uh, a total crapshoot. The the Oakland A's just have never been able <laughs> in the Billy Bean area era to get very far. I'm not sure if they've won a series. And so, uh, you know, he's a genius, but he can't yeah. seem to win in the postseason. Well, I mean, like last year, if you think about it, say the Mariners. Because, like, you know, if the Mariners win that second wild card instead of the A's and they get into that wild card game and they go to New York and it's lined up, the Mariners aren't having to use a start. They're not going to have to use an opener in a game in a freaking wild card game. They're rolling <laughs> out James Paxton against a team that struggles to hit lefties. Yeah. You know, they have a chance of winning that. If you talk to – I talked to a guy, a scout for the New York – for the Yankees, and he said that their front office was terrified of the idea that they would have to face James Paxton – in a one-game playoff, and it was like this was a scenario. He said, we're going to face James Paxton. He's going to shove on us for eight innings or seven innings. <laughs> and he goes, then we're going to face Diaz for two. And all Nelson Cruz has to do is hit a fly ball to the right field and the Mariners win the game. He goes like, <laughs> he goes like, and the guy goes, we don't give a damn if Cano's there or not. He's like, Cruz can change the game. Or he goes, Seager pulls a fly ball to right field. It goes out. We don't get any runs off those guys. We lose the game. We're a 95-win team, and we don't beat the Mariners. And that's, you know, whether or not the Mariners would have been good in the series after that, you don't know. Because like last year's team, you know, they had some serious questions about the rotation, who you would have used in those in those games. But, you know, that is the crapshoot of it. The problem is, like for the Mariners, if they went for it this year and did got the second wild card, ended the streak, but then lost, are they going to be in any better position to better than that the next year with Paxton looming towards free agency and Zanino looming, looming towards free agency? Like you had a two-year window. Those guys are all going to be gone after that. Yeah, it would have been an interesting. This is imponderable. But what if what you you had said it happened, and then they they win a couple more series and, and get to the World Series and, and lose, let's say, and yet they have the same issues moving forward that they that they you know that they acted upon, mm-hmm. but they would be coming off a, a pennant, let's say. Do they? Oh, no, the, do you have the do you have the guts to tear that team apart? I, I would say no. You've oh got to no. Keep it going. No, Stanton, yeah, Stanton, so. Stanton admitted if they made the playoffs last year, they ain't. They're not doing this. He admitted that. Yeah. Because it's just like, how could you sell? You can't. Couldn't justify it to your fan base. Not the same was like. He even admitted if it would have been different. Like, say they started slow and finished strong, and then just finished a game out or whatever instead of fading. Then yeah. maybe they they think differently. But in that fade, so many of their warts were exposed and who they were. I mean, another thing is, is like they 
they were lucky to win 89 games. We've established that. It took a career year from Diaz. So in the typical regression to the mean, you obviously don't think Diaz is going to save 57 games or be perfect in one-ring games or all these things. Um, and then you're still relying on Seager to bounce back and D Gordon to bounce back and Ryan Healy to progress, you know, and then you still, do you sign Cruz? Even if you don't sign Cruz, you're, you know, you're looking at a, a, a deal there. I mean, there would, it would be fraught with danger to go the other way too, to go for it without even just adding, say you added AJ Pollock and they would still have that kind of log jam too. Like, what do you do with D Gordon, Gene Segura and Robinson Cano? You have three infielders. And, you know, do you even try Gordon in center field again? I, like, they, they were kind of a messed up roster if they would have tried to go for it. Right. Or you, you could have done a moderate. I mean, you could have still made the Cano-Diaz trade and, and then signed Kimbrell or something yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could have, you know, that opportunity may have still been too great to, to pass. Um, they just... Uh, Jerry... Jerry uh, pushes back against the notion that it's the guy torn down to the studs, but they got rid of an awful lot of talent. Yes, they kept Haniger and Marco Gonzalez, and they got back some young starters like uh, Malik Smith and Domingo Santana. Um, but I mean, you traded three All Stars. You traded Cano. You traded your starting catcher, uh, your ace pitcher. I mean, that's that's pretty significant. So. Oh yes, it's a significant amount of talent lost. I mean, they, you know, and, and um, it'll be interesting to see if they how this works out. Like I, and then I can guarantee you this, and and I think you would agree with me. The previous ownership group would have never allowed this to happen, especially coming off eighty nine wins. They would have never allowed this to happen. No, I mean. I think part of the reason they're in this mess is that they always resisted the yeah. the rebuild. Uh, I was on a radio show and someone said, uh, "Boy, Larry, how many times have you seen this in your years? The Mariners going through a rebuild?" And I said, "Well, actually, not not at all. No, not since 2001. They've done it. They might have been crappy and they might have reduced payroll, but they ain't rebuilding by the by the sense of what a rebuild is. They've never done this that I've been around." No, I think people look at the records and assume they must have done it because they had so many 90-loss, 100-loss uh, uh, seasons. But um, but a lot of those years when they had their worst years were years when they were trying their hardest to win and, you know, went out and were the most aggressive in the trade or the free agency market, and it just absolutely backfired on them. Uh, you know, they were in a tough situation uh, coming out in the early 2000s. They had a really successful by record and popular group that were all kind of getting old together. And it's hard uh, to to uh, ha- have the stomach to just get rid of those guys and be cold carded when there's a lot of sentimentality involved. And they probably let some of those guys play too long. And then they I think they got fooled into thinking they were better than they were and they didn't want to. You know, they had, they, had, they had a ballpark to fill up. They were drawing two, over $2 million a year, and they couldn't, they couldn't just tear it down when they probably should have. And uh, that's why, you know, I, in a way I salute or applaud them for having a little bit of courage to doing this this year, knowing there would be a backlash from fans and believing in their heart it was the right thing. Now, now they've, got to show, they've got to show that it was the right thing, that it's going to work. It doesn't matter. There's a 
if there's bad luck along the the way or a bad injury or something, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and it's just going to add to the cynicism uh, that that attaches to the the Mariners that the the sort of the belief that they don't know what they're doing and they can't do anything right and all that. Uh, the only way to end that is to is to is to win and build a winning team. Uh, and that's what's going to make the next two or three years so fascinating. I do. I do think that there has been a, a more of a push uh, from fans that wanted to rebuild. You know, it's like the cool thing to do is to blow it up, you know, which is, again, like the concept of just it's like the blow it up. It used to be fire everybody. Now it's blow it up, you know, start over. It's not just as simple as that, and that's just like become like a, a meme almost on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But there are more and more people that felt like that the, the what they were doing just wasn't going to be sustainable for real success. I, I have seen that from more fans than not. But you know, the average fan that sees eighty nine wins and the recognizable names and sees them all get dealt, you know, the, the, they they don't agree with this on any level. No, and the blow it up crowd too. It sounds great, and <laughs> it's easy to say until you're in June and the team is 15 games under 500, and you're uh, and you still got three months to play, and uh, you know the the prospects that that are the hope for the future are in uh, West Virginia and Tacoma and uh, wherever else, and you've got to deal with the major league product. Yeah. Um, you know how good. <laughs> everything is geared toward the future of the Mariners, but they, you know, that was basically my column for the special section was they also have a team that they're going to field this year. And this year counts in the standings and fans are paying money to come out to watch games. So what, what is the team going to be like this year? And, uh, you know, a lot of the interesting players are not going to be there. I mean, they do have some uh, interesting guys, Domingo Santana, uh, I, you know, he's got some star potential, and it's going to be interesting to see what he does. And, and Malik Smith, if he's a keeper for the for the future, but most of the guys that you really are interested in, from Kyle Lewis to Julio Rodriguez to Jared Kelnick, they're going to be down in the minors. We're not going to see them here at uh, at the ballpark, which whose name I have to always try and remember what it is now <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no you're right um so let's get into this year's team real quick what did you pick them to how many wins did you have i can't remember uh we didn't pick wins we just picked place i had them i you and matt calkins had them fourth i had them fifth I had them oh, wow last. boy you're just uh, a way to go eeyore <laughs> i guess maybe i overestimated the texas rangers um but uh, if I were to pick, I'd probably pick 72 wins. See, like I that. thought we had to send the record in. I picked 74, I think, or maybe 73. I think we I think we've talked about it, but I don't remember. But I, I know I'm in that in, in that ballpark. After watching uh, them play a little bit more, yeah, like I thought maybe they could win 77. You know, just because the, I think the offense will be better, but or be decent at least. Uh, but watching them play defense, yeah. It, it makes my eyes bleed it sometimes. I had a, I was texting with a, a friend who's a scout uh, for an AL team. He's a pro scout, so he has the Mariners organization. And I said to him, I was like, how bad is this team defensively? And he said, other than D. Gordon and maybe Domingo Santana, 
the current lineup that they're rolling out there without Seager, they're all 40 defenders. On the 2080 scale, 50 is average, 40 is below average. And if you, he's, he rated D. Gordon at about a 50 to above. And he said that Santana, for never playing left field before in his career, has actually looked pretty good out there. Uh, but like Malik Smith, while he is fast, a lot of people question his arm strength and his jumps. Uh, Haniger, I think he's probably about average. He does some weird plays from time to time, though. Like he'll make the great one, and then he struck. He'll make a goofy play. But where it really is bad is like in the infield. Like a catcher, Nervais is you know well below average. First base, you're rolling out Vogelbach, Jay Bruce, and Encarnacion. Not so good. Tim Beckham has always been below average as a defender. That's why the the Rays kind of moved on from him. And then you're playing Ryan Healy, a first baseman at third base. That that, that part could be a little ugly. Yeah, and that will catch up to you quick too. I mean, the 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 a poor defense is it just makes you vulnerable on so many levels, particularly when you also have a bullpen that's that's questionable. Uh, uh, yeah, it's. I think a lot of people were sort of uh, seduced by those two games in in Japan where they played so well and uh, and won. I mean, those were two impressive wins. But it, let's reconvene after they play four games against the Red Sox and see and see where we stand. Now, if they take three out of four from the Red Sox, then maybe uh, uh, I, I might reassess my opinion. But. Um, uh, there's a lot of vulnerabilities on this team. Um, I mean, Strickland did look good as uh, in closing, two two solid saves. Um, the setup men to get to him will still be problematic, I think. And um, you know, the lineup uh, they do have the potential to score some runs. I think that could be a strength of this of this team for sure. I think like if you look at the overall lineup. It'll be okay. I mean, it's not. Who knows? They'll hit some home runs. They got some power. They are. They they have better. They have more guys that are willing to take a walk and 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 have better at bats. You know, you don't have as many free swingers and that aspect. But yeah, the the defense is going to be a problem. That bullpen. I you know I think Ross Cup and Corey Gearin, they're not household names, but they're they're proven big league guys that have had success. You know that they'll be okay. But it's just these young guys. You know and. The Mariners, they're going to be careful with some of these guys that are starting in terms of their innings and stuff. You know, the sixth and seventh inning, you can lose a lot of games in the sixth and seventh inning if you're not very good middle relief-wise. We've seen that before from the Mariners where they just can't they can't bridge it to get to the actual setup guys that the middle relievers just aren't very good. So, you know, they, they sent Dan Altavilla down because they've been frustrated with his consistency. Uh, they're going to use Matt Festa and, and Nick Rumbelow and, and guys like that. I mean, it just it's hard to say that that's going to be a strength because you just don't know what you're going to get from these guys. Rumbelow gives up a ton of home runs. And, uh, yeah, just, he gave up one in Japan. and uh, um, I agree 100% that the, the links to the, to the back end of the bullpen, and you really don't have a proven – eighth inning guy either you you have a you have a closer who has has potential and has good stuff and all that but who's going to get the ball to him is going to be an ongoing an ongoing question that um you know along with the defense looks like the 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 the, uh, weak link of this team Uh, well that'll be interesting to see um 
Anything else? Any other thoughts on this as we go into it? What did you think of the brick at T-Mobile? The, <laughs> I call it the, the Miguel Olivo honorary wall because the ball bounces back to the catcher. So when Olivo was having to chase the ball back, he would have benefited a little bit. And we were joking that we should have like the names of past catchers that struggled like Ben Davis and Kenji Jojima <laughs> on each of the bricks on the back yeah. wall. Right, yeah, that's a good idea. But they've had, they've had some doozies there. Yeah. Um, well, I went out to the workout while you were, uh, you know, being lazy in Japan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on uh, what day was that? Saturday, and saw it up close, and uh, I wasn't sure if it was real brick. I thought maybe it was paper mache or something, and I I went over there and kind of knocked on it, and sure enough, it was really solid and 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 real stuff. And I thought I think it looks pretty good. Uh, you know, I watched the game on TV on monday i didn't go to it and i thought it it looked good visually uh on on television um yeah i i don't really think too much one way or the other about it it's just brick on a ballpark (laughs) it doesn't really doesn't really affect me much it means less pink in the park i'm i'm great for that you know i don't yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, you can overdo the – oh, definitely overdo the pink. Uh, what other changes are there? They, they moved a photo well. I know that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, they have a fried chicken sandwich there. It's supposedly pretty good. Well, maybe we'll try it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, well, that's good for now. But on the next podcast we do, I want you to come prepared mm-hmm. with your uh, – your picks for all the divisions, your right. World Series teams, and also, um, you know, basically, you know, me and you, our Sunday columns that we used to have to do on this where you name your preseason MVP. Yeah. Uh, where you where you basically pick Bryce Harper every year. I might and Mike out. Trout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, your, and your Cy Youngs and your Rookie of the Years. All right. I hate to do it a week into the season because then somebody will get off to a fast start and you'll – uh, subconsciously lean towards them, but but we'll do it. Yeah, well, you we'll need some it. time to prepare because I haven't, you know, like I said, I haven't really thought about it. So. No, nah, me, me either, me right. either. Um, so I think we can end on that. I will see you at the park tomorrow. What time is it? Yeah, four ten. Four ten, I think. Uh, can I tell you who I'm having? Uh, yes. I'm that, having oh yes, this is big. Go ahead. With... <laughs> Let's talk about this later. It was supposed to. It was supposed to be dinner, but now it's coffee. But one. The future, uh, Mr. Jennifer Lopez, uh, Alex Rodriguez. And <laughs> is J-Lo in going to be at the coffee? Because if J-Lo's at the coffee, then I'll be jealous. If J-Lo's there, I'm going to break the journalistic rule and ask for a self uh, A photo? <laughs> yeah, not, Alex, you stay out. Alex, you stay out. Just me and J-Lo. <laughs> Just so I can send it to you. I can, uh, I can see it now, you spilling coffee all over J-Lo. <laughs> Uh, so he's in, uh, he's broadcasting the game, uh, I, I guess tomorrow and, uh, they offered a chance to sit down with him and do an interview. So I'm going to go see him and I'll write it up, uh, tomorrow before the game and should be online at some point. Well, I don't know when this is going to post, but on Thursday and I think it'll be in Sunday's paper. So look for it. I, I'm sure a lot of people are throwing, uh, throwing eggs at their computer because they don't like A-Rod. But I think he's an interesting guy, and he is a seminal part of the Mariners' history, whether you like him or not. So I think it'll be interesting to sit down with him. Before Kyle Seeger, he was the last player drafted and developed that became an all-star position player. Yeah. I mean, he had 
he had some great, great seasons. The 96 season, he should have been the MVP of the league. He was 20, 21 years old, and he uh, won the batting title. I think he hit 350-something and like 56 doubles or something like that. It was an incredible year. Uh, one of the one of the, and then he was forty forty two years later. Uh, I mean, he was a superstar in in Seattle. Whether he, he, he had, whether you liked the way he left or thought he was phony or whatever, he he was a fantastic player. Oh, I'll never forgive him for who let the dogs out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is a black mark. Yeah. He's got a few other black marks. But. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a few other issues, but <laughs> that. all right. Well, that sounds good. I, I, I'm hope everybody reads that. Uh, like I said, I hope everybody bought the uh, the hard copy of our special section was really cool. And I know Larry doesn't understand Legos, but it, you know, that a lot of work goes into those things. And Rich Baudet, who designs it, did a really good job. Oh yeah, yeah, it was it was great. I love I the photo that. Dean Rutz had for your column too. That was cool. Of all those guys. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Oh, the oh yeah, kind of the the brooding yeah. dark sky. Yeah, yeah. I like. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of using like dark clouds and stuff to give atmospheric. Because you're Eeyore. Uh, <laughs> make pictures atmospheric. I could have been Ansel Adams, but I just decided to go into writing. I've seen your picture taking style. <laughs> you're not Ansel Adams. <laughs> All right, we'll see you tomorrow. All right, see you tomorrow. All right, that's going to be it. I'm sick of hearing my own voice, and I'm sure you're sick of hearing it too. That was a long podcast. So without further ado, let's get to the voice created by Kyle Riley. This has been the Extra Innings Podcast presented by the Seattle Times with your host, Ryan Divish. Thanks to the Midnight Salvage Company for providing the beds and bumper music for the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can reach Ryan via email, rdivish at seattletimes.com. Follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Divish or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ryan Divish. Thanks for listening. 